Come on, we need a dark. It's all yours. Yes! This is going to be good. First Church, so great to see you guys. Glad you chose to worship with us. If you're new, my name's Chad. We are one church that meets in more than one location. So besides you guys here at North Garnett, we have family right now meeting out at our Stone Canyon campus, those others who join us online. So if you would, let them hear you. Put your hands together. Welcome them into our time of study here today. And today we are wrapping up our We series. And in this series, we've been talking about how God didn't design us to do life alone. He created us to do life, first of all, with Him, to live in a meaningful, healthy relationship with Him, but also to live in meaningful, healthy relationships with others. God didn't design us to do life in isolation, to do life alone. And we see this on the very first pages of Scripture when God created everything. Back in Genesis chapter 2, after He created the human race, look at what He said. He said, it is not good for man to be alone, meaning loneliness was our original weakness. You see, God, he's a relational God, and he created us in his image, so that means we're relational creatures. He never intended us to do life alone, and so that's why we've been talking about how to have healthy relationships here on earth, because God wants us to have just that. The problem is, as we've talked about, our culture has no idea how to do friendships well, how to do marriage well, and Satan has attacked those things and messed them up and hijacked what God intended for our good. And so we're looking at how to do relationships God's way. Because when you aim at the wrong target, when you're aiming at the wrong goal, you have the wrong goal in mind, wrong expectations in mind, you're fighting a losing battle. You guys know I love the game of basketball. I love to play basketball. I love to watch basketball. I even enjoy coaching basketball. I've got to coach my son a little bit in basketball. But even before I was a dad, I used to coach little kid ball all the time. And the last church I served, we had an upward basketball program, kind of a Christian league basketball program. And it was a lot of fun. I would coach a team every year. And one year I was coaching six and seven-year-olds. And we had this one little boy. He was a mess. He never knew where he was on the court. He never had a clue what was going on. But he was a lot of fun and he gave his all and the entire season he scored one basket I'll never forget him scoring he was so excited so pumped when he did we came out of halftime and he started the second half and he was ready to go and he got the ball and he took off down the court dribbling and he made a perfect layup in form but he shot on the wrong goal. He shot on the other team's basket. And so the ref blew the whistle. You know, upward is kind of a teaching training thing. And so I brought him in. I was like, hey, buddy, that was a great layup, bud. And he didn't even let me finish. He was just like, yeah, it was great. I scored. I scored, coach. It was awesome. And he's just all excited. And I hated to burst his bubble. But I was like, yeah, buddy, you did. And it was a really pretty layup, but you scored on the wrong basket. You scored on the other team's goal. And he looked at me and had this panic look on his face, look of panic on his face. And then he said, coach do you think anyone else noticed and I'm like yeah everybody noticed everybody saw what you did 
It doesn't matter how skilled you are, how talented you are. If you're aiming at the wrong goal, you're fighting a losing battle. And that's true not just in sports. That's true when it comes to relationships. It's true when it comes to our friendships. It's true when it comes to our families. And it's definitely true when it comes to this relationship we're going to talk about today, marriage. Marriage is the first relationship between the human race that God ever created. And therefore, I think it's important for us to talk about because God's first response to our loneliness, now, it wasn't his only response, but his first response to our loneliness was marriage. Remember when God said, it's not good for man to be alone? Genesis 2, look at what happens next. Genesis 2, starting at verse 21. So the Lord God caused the man to fall into a deep sleep. And while he was sleeping, he took one of the man's ribs and closed up the place with flesh. Then the Lord God made a woman from the rib he had taken out of the man, and he brought her to the man. The man said, this is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, for she was taken out of man. And so we see, for this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and they will become one flesh. God's first response to our loneliness was the institution, the covenant, the relationship of marriage between a husband and a wife, a man and a woman. And what that means is marriage was the first relationship God ever created for the human race, but it's also the most intimate relationship that God created for us. But with that said, I know that when some of you guys hear the word marriage, you start to get a little bit nervous. Because some of you guys right now are thinking, normally when we have a marriage series at church, I skip it because it doesn't really apply to me. And so let me just speak to you right now if you're a little bit nervous as I start to talk about marriage. Let me speak to a couple different groups. First of all, if you're single in the room today, we are so glad you're here. We love you. God loves you. And I just want to let you know, contrary to what our culture teaches There is nothing wrong with singleness. The Bible doesn't say that there's anything wrong with singleness whatsoever. You are not an incomplete person if you're single. And marriage, even though it was the first relationship God established for the human race, it's not the only one, and it's not a mandatory relationship. Excuse me. God doesn't require for us to get married. It is a good thing, and the Bible teaches that. But there is nothing wrong with singleness. In fact, Paul even says that. In 1 Corinthians chapter 7, Paul writes to the church, and he says, for some people, they're better off staying single because of your life circumstance or because maybe you haven't found the right person who's compatible for you, you're better off staying single. So there's nothing wrong with being single. Paul would not have written that if there was. And so we just want to let you know your identity is not found in your marital status. Your identity is found in Jesus and Jesus alone. And I want to apologize this morning. If you've ever been part of a church where you have felt excluded because you're single, I don't think it's probably been intentional, but sometimes churches, they just plan their programming, their activities around families and couples and Those who are single feel left out. And if that's been your experience in church, I just want to be the first to apologize and say that I hate that. Because when we say we is greater than me, that's kind of been one of the sayings we've been talking about throughout this entire series. What we are not saying is that if you're single, 
then you need to get married. That's not what we're necessarily saying. Now, if you are married already, then what we want you to understand is we is greater than me in the sense that your we, your marriage has to be stronger than you just by yourself. That's what we're emphasizing. But this saying, this theme, we is greater than me, still applies to you if you're single because if you are single, you still need to have godly friendships, godly relationships that are going to support you and hold you up because whether you're single or married, God doesn't want any of us to do life in isolation. So let me just say that up front. If you're single, this is the time for you to lean in. Because if you plan on getting married one day, we're going to talk about God's design for marriage today. And so you can start with the right foundation and you can make sure that as you think about marriage that you choose well because that's important. But then also if you're single and you have no intention of ever getting married, that's okay too. This sermon will help you understand God better. It will help you understand his love better. It will help you understand relationships in general better. And there's one more group I want to talk to real fast. And that's those of you who may have experienced divorce. I know some of you guys get uncomfortable because you've experienced divorce in the past. And again, I just want to let you know we love you, God loves you, and we are so glad that you're here. And I want to apologize if you've been part of a church in the past that has shamed you because you've been divorced. That is not us. We believe that there is love and there is grace and healing for everyone. And so if you're divorced here, your identity, your self-worth is not defined in your marital status. Again, it is defined by your identity in Christ and him alone. Now, I know what some of you guys might be thinking, but God hates divorce. And if you've never heard that before, you might be thinking, Chad, where do you get that from? Where do you get God hates divorce? Well, Malachi chapter 2 verse 16 actually says, I hate divorce, says the Lord. So there's that, you know. But I want you to notice what the Bible doesn't say. It doesn't say God hates divorced people. It doesn't say that God hates those who have been through a divorce. The reason why this says that is because he's our father and he loves us and he hates the pain that is caused by divorce. He hates to see you suffer. He hates to see any of his children go through pain and heartache. The reason why the Bible says God hates divorce is because he doesn't want to see any of his children experience that pain, but he doesn't hate you. He loves you and there is healing and there is grace for you. So if you're divorced today, and maybe you're remarried, or you're thinking about getting remarried, this sermon's for you, because we're going to talk about God's design for marriage. But even if you're not sure if you ever want to get married again, that's okay too, because again, it will help you better understand our God. Because what we need to understand, and this is something that our culture has forgotten, is that marriage was God's idea. He is the author he is the creator. He is the designer of marriage. That means he is the only expert in marriage. And so we don't have the right to change it up. We don't have the right to mess with it because he designed us, he designed marriage, and he knows what's best for us. Now, like anything that God has given us in life, marriage has the high potential for extreme amounts of good when it's done his way. But marriage also has the potential for extreme amounts of bad when it's not done his way. Let me put it this way. Only when we do marriage God's way will our marriages reach their full potential for good. And the problem is for many of us, we've never been told what God's way is. We've never known what goal to shoot for. 
We've never known God's expectations. No one ever shared with us God's blueprint, God's plan for marriage. You may have heard me illustrate it like this before. If I were to hand you this Ziploc bag of Legos and tell you, hey, these pieces will make some spacecraft from a famous movie, and I didn't give you any instructions or a picture of what this spacecraft is supposed to look like, and I said, build it as the designer intended it to be built. Could you do it? You could probably build something, but you're not going to build exactly what the designer intended. And that's exactly how many of us were raised. We were set up for relational failure because somebody said, hey, marriage is a good thing, go do it. Or relationships, they're good, you need to have them. But nobody ever gave us God's blueprint. Nobody ever gave us God's picture for what those things were supposed to look like. And so we've tried to piece together something ourselves and it just isn't working. And so I believe what we need to do today is we need to sit back and humble ourselves and say, God, what is your design? What is your picture for marriage? And for that matter, all of our relationships. And God, since you created us, we want to do relationships your way because none of us want to experience a bad marriage. None of us wants, want to go through an unhealthy marriage. None of us want that. Now, as a minister, as a preacher, I've attended a ton of weddings. And one thing I've learned is Every single wedding, no matter how much preparation and planning goes into it, no matter how much money is spent, every single wedding ceremony has the potential for something to go terribly wrong. And I've seen this happen firsthand. And the other day I was online and I found some epic wedding fails. And I thought I would share some of these examples with you. So take a look at these video clips with me. Here's one epic wedding fail. They decided to take a picture of a dog. You can see what happened. Way too much weight on that dog. And so their pictures were ruined. How about this one? This is their first kiss as a married couple. So they lean in. Yeah, isn't that awesome? Yeah, that's using your heads right there. I love this one right here because this couple probably paid a lot of money to get married on the beach. But apparently one of the, the resort guests doesn't care, doesn't seem to mind. And so he decides to sunbathe and go for a dip in the water. Well, they're getting married. And I love this at the end. He even kind of like adjusts his swim trunks here, right in the background of them getting married. That's awesome. Totally oblivious. And how about this couple? They decide to have sparklers as they left. And as the bride goes by one of them, she gets a little bit too close and catches her hair on fire. I know all you girls are thinking, that's awful. And the guys are laughing. I mean, that's how it works. Yeah. So those are some epic wedding fails. I've never seen anything that bad. But here's the thing. We can laugh and we can snicker at a bad moment or a disastrous moment during a wedding ceremony. But nobody laughs at a bad marriage. Nobody laughs when they see an unhealthy marriage. And God doesn't either. God doesn't want us in a bad situation when it comes to our marriages. And so he has given us a plan. It is essential that we understand who created marriage and why he created it. Now, I want to let you know, just because you do marriage God's way doesn't mean it's going to be easy. Marriage is tough. Even when you do it God's way, marriage is tough. And I just want to tell you, besides my relationship with Jesus, my marriage to Allison is the best thing that has ever happened to me by far. But it's not always easy. It's the best thing outside of Jesus that's happened to me. But it's not always easy. And that's why I always tell people, for a marriage to work, it requires work. 
It takes work for a marriage to work. Let me just ask all you guys in the room today who are married, I want you to raise your hand. I want you to raise them real high. Do it out at Stone Canyon as well. If you are married and you have realized at some point in your marriage that marriage was a lot harder than you thought it would be, raise your hand. Go ahead and raise your hand now. Keep them up high because I want all the single people to see your hands, okay? Look around at all these hands up real high. The only people not raising their hands are newlyweds and older couples who didn't hear the question, okay? <laughs> you can put your hands down now. It takes work for a marriage to work. But here's the thing. Anything of value requires effort. Yes, marriage is hard, but when it's done God's way, it is so worth it. So let's talk about God's way. Let's talk about God's design for marriage. And so the Bible teaches us some things that God expects. And the first thing we learn is God designed marriage to be a lifelong journey with him. In Matthew chapter 19, Jesus asks a question about marriage, and he refers back to the original marriage in the Garden of Eden between Adam and Eve, and he uses that as an example for all of us. And listen to what Jesus says, Matthew 19, verse 6. He says, so they are no longer two but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, let no one separate. Now, a couple things I want to point out here. First of all, I want you to notice how Jesus says that when a man and woman are married, when husband and wife are married, they are no longer two, but one flesh. Now, we're all adults here. We know this is sexual language, but it's more than that. This is also the language of deep intimacy, the deepest form of intimacy that two people can have. And our culture has equated sex with intimacy, but here's the thing. The Bible teaches the two don't necessarily go hand in hand. And the more we cheapen sex in our culture, the more our culture longs for true intimacy. What this here is talking about, the two becoming one, this is intimacy that is only found within the marriage covenant, within the marriage relationship before God. And that's why Jesus goes on to say, therefore, what God has joined together, what who has joined together? What God has joined together let no one separate. See, marriage is a lifelong journey that a man and woman do together with God. God is at the center of every healthy marriage. And we are to be pursuing him together as one. And this is important for us to keep in mind because when God isn't at the center, our marriages are in trouble. I have a friend, Jamie Snyder, who preached at Lakeside Christian Church in Kentucky. He's a Christian author and so forth. But I heard him say this quote one time, and I've never forgotten. I thought it was really good. Jamie said this, marriage is a dance designed for three for one man, one woman, and one Savior, Jesus. I love that. That's God's design right there for marriage. So if you want a healthy marriage, if you want a stable marriage, one that lasts for the long haul, it starts with you fixing your eyes on Jesus. And I believe a lot of the disillusionment and disappointment that people experience in marriage is because they ask their spouse to do for them what only God can do. See, when you turn to your spouse and you say, I want you to fulfill all of my hopes and dreams, and I want you to be my source of joy, my source of happiness, my source of strength, I want you to be the wind beneath my wings, you know what you're basically saying to your spouse? I want you to be my savior. I want you to give me what only Jesus can give me. 
And I understand why we want all those things from another person, because we like those things. So we want to find someone who can give us joy and satisfaction and somebody who can be the wind beneath our wings and all that sort of stuff. But here's the thing, it's not found in a romantic relationship. It's found in Jesus and in Jesus alone. And when you ask your spouse to be your savior, it's unfair to them, it's not their job, and it sets your marriage up for failure. I was listening to a sermon the other day by Kyle Eidemann who preaches at Southeast Christian Church and I heard him say that one time he was doing some marriage premarital counseling and this couple came in and he asked the couple, you know, what do you like best about your fiance? And the girl spoke up immediately and she said, every time that I'm around him, I experience butterflies in my stomach. Well, that's not exactly the answer Kyle was looking for. And so he pulled out his phone and quickly did a Google search on the lifespan of butterflies. And he told this girl, he said, well, you know, the average butterfly lives nine to 12 months. So your butterflies or something, they're gonna die eventually and you need something else to hold the two of you together. And I thought that was a pretty good point because infatuation only lasts so long. It only goes so far. And at that point, you need something else that's going to hold you together. And that something else is actually someone else. It's God. With him at the center, even through all the trials and stresses and anxieties that you may experience, he can hold you together as your solid foundation. That's why when I do premarital counseling, I always use this image, this illustration of a triangle. It's not original to me. I've heard a ton of other people use it, but it's a triangle with God at the head, husband and wife there on the bottom. And here's the thing. The gap between husband and wife, between man and woman, it is too great for us to bridge on our own. But naturally, as husband and wife move closer to God, they move closer to one another. But the further you get away from God, the further husband and wife get apart. If you want to get closer to your spouse, it starts with getting closer to God. It's a lifelong journey you do together with him. See, your deepest needs are met through your maker, not your mate. And if you start off with that foundation, you're headed in the right direction. But then there's something else that the Bible teaches us about God's design for marriage, and it's this. God designed marriage to be a shared partnership. In Genesis chapter 2, when God creates Eve for Adam, he refers to Eve as the helper for Adam. Now, a lot of people get real nervous about this word helper because they want to throw on it modern day, a modern-day understanding of the word helper. Don't do that. This word helper in Hebrew is a rich Hebrew word that basically means partner, and in fact, this word is used to describe God throughout the Old Testament. It's used to describe God as the helper of his people, the helper of the nation of Israel. It is not a demeaning term at all. It's not a degrading term at all. It's used of God on occasion. What basically this word is telling us is that God provided a wife for Adam to support him in ways that he needed support. And the same is true vice versa. The husband is there to give strength to, the spouse, to his spouse when she needs it. It's a lifelong partnership together. God designed marriage to be a relationship where husband and wife complement one another. Not compete with one another, but complement one another. They play to each other's strengths. Meaning husband and wife, they don't fight with one another, they fight for one another. Don't compete with one another, they complement one another. And there's a huge difference. I once heard someone say that fairy tales are about finding the right person, but true love is about being the right person. And I love that. 
It's not about having the best, but it's about being the best for your spouse, being there as your spouse needs you, giving up yourself, having a you-first, me-second mindset, humbling yourself and serving your spouse in whatever way they need. It's putting yourself second, putting yourself behind your spouse in order to lift them up, and that's the example we have with Jesus. Jesus lowered himself in order to lift us up, and he expects us to do that in our relationships and especially in our in our marriages. Now, here's the thing. It's hard for us to do that at times, but I've seen positive examples where that's happened, and it leads to lasting, healthy, awesome marriages. I've got a picture up here right now of my grandparents. This was taken this past Christmas, and there's Alex and me, and Alice and my wife, and daughter Addie on the other side. Then in the middle, these are my grandparents, my mom's parents, Dudley and Georgie May. Though That's their names. I love it. Good Kentucky names, but Dudley and Georgie May. And I talked about them last week in my sermon on generations. Godly, godly people. But here's the thing. They are lifelong partners. They've been married for 65 plus years. I've lost track of how many years they've been married. And they are such a sweet couple. But my grandma here recently, the past few years, has had several strokes. And a lot of times she doesn't know where she is. She doesn't know who people are. Sometimes she doesn't even recognize my grandpa when he comes and sees her. Now, some days she does. But other days she's just very, very confused. But my grandpa, every single day, drives to see her. The nursing home where she now lives is about a half an hour away from their house. And he drives, he doesn't drive, I'm sorry, he gets somebody to drive him. He can't drive anymore. He finds somebody to drive him every single day to visit her. So he hits up family members first who live locally, but then when they can't do it, he'll start calling people at church. He'll start pulling out the phone book and just calling people in the small town he lives in to drive him to go and see his bride. And every now and then, one of my family members, they get a little frustrated, not mad at him, but they'll just say, Grandpa or Dad, you know, you don't have to see her every day. There are some days she doesn't even know who you are. You don't have to see her every day. She won't even know if you don't show up. And he'll say, but I'll know. She's my bride. And I committed to be by her side for better, for worse. And if the roles were reversed, she would be there for me. As long as I'm able, I'm going to be by her side. I want you to notice they're holding hands. Isn't that sweet? It's like they're teenagers or something. It's great. I love it. Because he decided a long time ago, and so did she, I'm going to be the partner that my spouse needs me to be, for better, for worse. And so let me just ask you, are you being the spouse that your partner needs you to be? Are you being the husband, being the wife that your spouse needs you to be? Because the best relationship advice I ever heard came from Jesus. In Matthew chapter 7, verse 12, Jesus says this. He says, do for others what you would want them to do for you. I don't think we need to read another book on marriage. I don't think we need to hear another sermon on marriage. All we need to do is do this. Can you imagine what our marriages, what our friendships, what our relationships in life would look like if we all actually did this, do for others? what you want them to do for you. See, our marriages are about being the best for our spouse. 
Something else the Bible teaches us is this. God designed marriage to be fun. I know we've talked about a lot of heavy, serious stuff, but I don't want to forget this. God designed marriage to be fun. When you look in Genesis chapter 2, as God is designing the first marriage, as he's laying out the pattern for the first marriage, he says in verse 24, For this reason a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and they will become one flesh. I love that word united because it's talking about how a husband and wife will leave their families, their parents, to go start their own life. And that's exciting. That's fun to go and start a new life with your spouse. And God intended for that to be exciting and fun. But that word united there is actually another rich Hebrew word that means to cling to, to pursue. God intended marriage to be a lifelong pursuit where couples pursue one another all the days of their lives. But here's the thing. When we hear the word pursuit and pursuing, a lot of times what we think about is dating. Because when you date somebody, you pursue a person, right? I mean, you want to get to know them. You want to find out their interest. And you're wondering, are they going to say yes to the next date? Or are they going to hold your hand tonight? When's the first kiss going to take place? And you're pouring in a lot of effort and energy to get to know that person, to invest in that person, to pursue that person. But here's the thing. Something seems to happen once you get married where you lose that desire to pursue your spouse. And what happens is what I like to call the drift effect, where you just start to kind of drift apart. It's not intentional. It just happens. It's like when you go in the ocean and you just kind of ride the waves a little bit, and pretty soon you're far away from where you're starting and you didn't even realize how far you had gone. The drift effect. And it happens in so many marriages. Bill Watterson, who was the creator of Calvin and Hobbes, he writes this. He says, you know what's weird? Day by day, nothing seems to change, but pretty soon, everything's different. And some of you guys are thinking, yeah, I've been there. I've experienced that. I know all about that. See, the older you get and the longer you're together with somebody, the more outside things start to compete for your time. Your job will compete for more time. Your responsibilities will compete for your time. Your financial situation, your health situation, even your children and grandkids will start to compete for your time. And the drift effect occurs. And so we have to be intentional about spending time with our spouse, making time for our spouse. And Alice and I, we've had to learn this. We've been married for 12 years now, or almost 12 years, and we're at the point where our kids are young and we're busy, and we just had this conversation about a month or so ago. We're not spending enough time just the two of us. And yes, we want our kids to know that we're always there for them and that we love them, but we also want our kids to know that mom and dad love each other. You have to be intentional about that because love is a choice. And I don't know how many times I've sat down with couples who have drifted apart and they'll tell me, you know, we just fell out of love. We just drifted apart. And the Bible teaches us that love is a choice we make, not a feeling we fall into. See, I've stopped using the terminology of falling into love, falling in love. Because if you can fall in love, then you can just as easily fall out of love. The Bible teaches love is a choice. It's not a feeling we fall into. Because remember, infatuation only goes so far. God has given us the choice to love one another. He's given us the choice to love him. Love is a choice we make, not a feeling we fall into. And so we choose every single day whether or not we are going to intentionally love our spouse. Now, that's not what we see in the movies. That's not what we see on TV. What we see... We see in the movies and TV and in music and all that kind of stuff, I mean, it's just infatuation on steroids. And I think, honestly, if we want to have healthier marriages, we all need to grow up a little bit and just realize that God created love as a choice for us that we choose to make every single day. I'm not saying feelings aren't important, but they're not the lead domino. 
And if you're at the point right now in your marriage where you feel like you've kind of drifted apart, let me give you some advice. If you want what you had at first, do what you did at first. Pursue your spouse. Pursue your spouse at all costs. One thing about my grandparents, when I see them in the nursing home, she'll pat his arm, he'll play with her hair, he'll feed her lunch, and every time I see them, it's like they're on their first date all over again. And it's sweet. If you want what you had at first, do what you did at first because relationships don't survive on autopilot. Complacency is the enemy of any relationship. And if you want to avoid complacency, or maybe you want to get out of it right now, let me give you some advice. First of all, pursue more face-to-face time. And what I mean by that, have quality conversations with your spouse. Have quality conversations with them. Put the phone down. Turn the TV off. Get away from the kids for a little bit. And have real conversation with your spouse. Talk to them. Listen to them. Compliment them. Encourage them. Set aside time for real conversation. Have quality face-to-face time. But you also need something else. You also need quality side-by-side time. And what I mean by that is you need to do things together. You need to have shared interests, common hobbies. You need to make memories together. You need to do things just the two of you that no one else does with you. You need to go out and have shared interests and make those memories. Now, here's the thing. Those two things, face-to-face time and side-by-side time, that's a recipe for not just a quality marriage. It's also the recipe for a quality friendship, a quality relationship in life. But there's one other thing if you're married that is exclusive for those of you who are married. You need one more thing, face-to-face time, side-by-side time. And I'm just going to go ahead and say it. You also need intentional belly-to-belly time, okay? And I know we're all adults in the room. And as uncomfortable as that just made you feel, my in-laws are listening to the sermon right now. They're visiting this weekend, so it made me feel really uncomfortable as well. But I'm telling you, they're right over there. Anyway, I'm telling you. 1 Corinthians 7, the Bible says we have to be intentional about guarding the intimacy that we're only supposed to have in marriage because Satan wants to attack that more than anything. And a lot of times when... I talk to couples and they're struggling with the belly-to-belly time. It normally goes back to their lacking side-by-side time and face-to-face time. It's a bigger problem than just in the bedroom. But we need to make sure that we are guarding that time, but we're also making sure that it's healthy and that it's active because 1 Corinthians 7 tells us to make sure that that intimacy that is reserved only for a husband and wife is kept alive and kept healthy. And if it's not, if you don't intentionally do that, you will drift apart. Face-to-face time, side-by-side time, belly-to-belly time, and I'll move on from that. One more thing before we close, and it's this. God designed marriage to be a picture of grace. And I kind of want to end with this because I think it's so important. What Satan wants more than anything is to hijack our relationships, and he especially wants to hijack our marriages. And one way that he does that is by casting blame or getting us to cast blame on one another. That's what happened in the Garden of Eden after the first marriage was designed and created in Genesis 3 verse 12. Remember the human race sin, Adam and Eve sin? And look at Adam's response after he's caught sinning. In Genesis 3 verse 12 it says, the man said to God, the woman you put here with me, in other words, I didn't want her, I didn't ask for her, you gave her to me God. The woman you put here with me, she gave me some fruit from the tree and I ate it. What did Adam immediately do? 
He blamed Eve. And here's the thing. Blame will blow up a marriage. Blame will blow up any relationship. Relationships struggle when one person thinks that they're less sinful than the other. Relationships struggle when one person thinks that they are less sinful than the other. Sin has the uncanny ability to make us feel really insecure, and we believe we have to have the upper hand in every single situation, and we end up thinking that we've done wrong is not near as bad as what someone else has done to us, and that is always unhealthy. We start to keep a record of how our partner has wronged us. And the Bible says in 1 Corinthians 13, verse 5, that real love, true love, godly love keeps no record of wrongs. Why? Because that's what God did for us. That's the example he has shown us, and God expects us to do that for our spouse as well. A healthy marriage is one that is grounded in his grace. I love this picture up on the screen. This is a picture from Allison and my wedding day. That was a happy day. We were excited. It was fun. It was a day of celebration. I love that picture. We were naive and stupid and dumb and knew nothing about life, but still, it was a fun, exciting day. I love that picture. But I love this picture even more. That picture was taken. Picture was taken this past Christmas. Those two, one miscarriage, tragic miscarriage. Two kids, three different homes, within two different states, 12 hours away from our families. We've had medical issues that you guys know nothing about. We've had stresses and anxieties that we've experienced you guys know nothing about. Those two have had sleepless nights, have experienced pain, loss of loved ones. Those two have been through the fire. But you know, those two have a language all their own. Allison can look at me and not say a word. I know exactly what she's thinking and vice versa. We laugh at each other's jokes when no one else ever laughs at us. She laughs more at me, but still. We have a bond, a connection that is just so powerful. I'd pick that picture over this one any day. Because those two have been through the fire together. And we've made it out on the other side. You know why? Because our marriage is grounded in God's grace. We're not perfect. We've made a lot of mistakes. We've had to forgive each other over and over and over and over again. We've made each other mad. We've fought. But we've made it through the fire because our marriage is grounded in God's grace. I like another picture too. It's a picture I showed you earlier. It's this one right here. 65 plus years of marriage. They can barely walk, barely stand up on their own. My grandma can't even feed herself. Sometimes she can't see very well. Sometimes she mistakes cars for cows when she looks out the window. 
My grandpa has a bad back, bad heart, high blood pressure. He just had surgery a couple weeks ago on his hip. But they're still holding hands. They've been through the fire. And the reason why they've made it out on the other side is because their relationship, their marriage is grounded in God's grace. Relationships are hard. But when you do them God's way, they are so worth it. You find love, you find commitment, you find support, you find grace that is foreign to this world. Relationships are hard. But God gave them to us for a reason. And when you do them his way, they are so worth it. Would you pray with me? Father, we thank you so much for today and this chance we had to open up your word and study it. And Father, I just pray that as we've listened to these various passages about marriage and also how they apply to different relationships we have in life, that Father, we would remember that you are the designer of relationships, you are the, the designer of marriage. And if we want to have the healthy, fulfilling relationships that you intend us to have, we've got to do it your way. May your design be our goal. May it be the target we aim at. And we thank you so much for showing us how to love one another by providing your son. In his name, Jesus Christ, I pray. Amen.